1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've got four weeks, and the topic is resurrection. Resurrection, that is, bodies coming back to life, people coming back to life. If you're visiting church this week, I wonder how that makes you feel. I wonder if you're hoping for something that wasn't too weird and crazy, and now I've said the R word, resurrection. There were people in the church in Corinth who thought that idea was crazy. Just look down. Keep your Bible open at page 961. Uh, just look down at verse 35. Verse 35, we didn't read it, but 
This is what they're thinking. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? I mean, with what kind of body do they come? To, to some of the people in this church, resurrection was a crazy idea. Or verse 12, have a look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? See, talk of physical, bodily resurrection after the grave, it was no more popular around Corinth than it is around Edinburgh. Greek and Roman culture was no more open to the idea that after people died, they might come back. No more open to the idea than Scottish culture is around us. It seemed absurd to them. But notice, as you listen to that reading, Paul's response is not to ask us to kind of throw our brains in the bin, you know, a kind of switch off all logical thought and take a great big giant leap of faith to join the fairies at the bottom of the garden. No. Paul's response is a closely argued historical account with huge logical implications. This isn't a morning, this isn't a series to throw your brain on the, in the bin, but to turn it on. Church is always actually like that. But before we get into those details of chapter 15, I do want to step back and, and kind of introduce the whole series. Um, you'll see a handout on the back. Sorry, it's so full. That's my fault. Um, don't panic, though. It's actually not going to be as long as that looks. But just to introduce the whole series, my opening question is, why be a Christian? Is it really worth being a Christian? You listen to what Richard and Yuko are about to do. Is that really worth it? The sacrifices we'll be making here to help them do it. Is that really worth it? I'm hoping that's a question that's relevant to everyone, whether or not you'd call yourself a Christian at the moment or not. You see, if you're not yet following Jesus, I, ho I hope you're a bit curious why so many people do here and around the world. Why is Jesus worth it, worth staking your life upon? Perhaps you're about to take the plunge, or you're thinking about taking the plunge to become a Christian, and you've just begun to realize this might actually cost me. There might be a relational cost, people thinking I'm weird. There might be time cost or priority cost as I stop living just for myself and think about living for God and other people. Is it really worth it? Or maybe you've been a Christian for ages. Doesn't matter actually how long, it could be a few months, it could be a few decades. None of us are immune to this question flickering through our minds. Is it really worth it? I know the question sometimes occurs to me. Uh, most recently, uh, a few weeks ago, I was just kind of thinking across my peer group at uni. And as the years roll on, the gap gets bigger and bigger between those who are Christians and the kind of lifestyle and choices they're making and those who aren't. The wealth gap gets bigger. The fame gap gets bigger. Is it really worth it? And actually, the more costly our Christian living is or our Christian services, the more we might be wondering this question, the louder this question gets. And so by this point of the letter of 1 Corinthians, by this point, I, I expect the Corinthians might be wondering this pretty loudly. See, all the way through, Paul's been calling them to imitate him as he imitates Jesus. He's been saying, look, I've got a lifestyle of serving others, of living for God's glory, 
rather than my own comfort or self-satisfaction. Whereas the Corinthians, to this point, have been living for themselves, living for now. They've kind of developed their own dodgy form of Christianity that, that says it's absolutely fine to live for me and live for now. They've just breathed that in from the city around them. But Paul says, no, Christian living is imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christian living is laying down rights and freedoms for the sake of others and for God's glory. A Christian will care about idolatry. A Christian will care about purity. A Christian will care about other people hearing the good news so they can be saved. A Christian will use their gifts to build up the body. A Christian's willing to look foolish in the eyes of the world. Paul's that kind of Christian, but the Corinthians, on the whole, are not. And so by this point, as Paul calls them to join him, they might well be thinking, steady on. <laughs> I mean, whew, hang on. If that's what a Christian involves, if, if, if it means looking like Paul and Jesus and, and self-sacrifice, I mean, is it really worth it? Maybe someone this morning is thinking exactly that here. Maybe some here have, have been challenged by this letter over the last year as we've worked our way through, and maybe you have taken steps forward in sacrificial service. I know someone who, um, having heard some of the commands about holiness in chapters 5 to 7, he did start a, a difficult conversation with a Christian brother about how they were living. That's not easy especially when the results aren't immediately positive. Others from those same chapters took the command to flee sexual immorality seriously. That's not easy. I know others who um, have taken one step forward, as we were thinking about in chapters 8 to 10 last term, one step forward in sharing the good news. They've stuck their necks out. They've asked friends or colleagues if they'd be interested in looking at a bit of the Bible. Some have had positive responses, and some haven't. The most painful one I heard of, uh, someone was really keen, met up the first time, and didn't like what they heard. That's not easy. Is it really worth it? Likewise, in the evenings, we've been thinking from chapters 11 to 14 about everyone using their gifts to build up the church. That's what's needed to help a church family thrive. In eight days' time, we've got that elders' update. You heard about it earlier. And we're going to hear some of the needs around, especially once Napier leave, needs for service, needs for finance. And achieving any of that would require sacrifice. It already has required sacrifice for many. It means laboring hard to build God's church in love. It means imitating Paul as he imitates Christ. So is it really worth it? Perhaps you expect me, or the Bible, to say an unqualified yes. Perhaps you expect me to say, yeah, of course it's worth it. I mean, don't ask stupid questions. Of course, the Christian life, you know, it's, it's joy, it's all joy, it's all blessing. Of course it's worth it. Just fix up your permanent Christian smile and get on with it. Stop asking questions. Actually, that's not the answer 1 Corinthians gives. Paul's answer to whether the Christian life is worth it is it depends. It depends. What does it depend on? Well, in his mind, on one crucial issue. Is there a resurrection? 
Is there a real resurrection to come? Is there going to be a day where everyone who has died is pulled back out their graves to stand before God and face eternal life in Jesus or eternal judgment outside of him? Paul thinks if that resurrection is real, it's all worth it. If there's no resurrection, we might as well go home. Let me just show you that. Verse 19 of our passage, chapter 15, verse 19. Here's Paul putting it in his own words. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. That's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? I think sometimes the the honesty of the Bible writers kind of shocks us. It, It hits us in the face, catches us off guard. Paul says, if there's nothing beyond the grave... Being a Christian is simply not worth it. I wonder if your friends or your colleagues or perhaps family members who aren't Christians, I wonder if they ever look at you with pity. I guess they wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe in their minds, poor Jane, she gives so much money and time and energy to that church stuff. She could be having a line on Sundays. She could be out enjoying herself midweek. She could be Joining in with the drinking and the sleeping around, she could be buying a lot nicer stuff. Maybe sometimes we're tempted to agree, to to drift into self-pity. And the thing is, if there's no physical resurrection, Paul would agree. What a waste of a life. Verse 32, halfway through, puts it like this. If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But of course, Paul is convinced that the dead are raised. And so this whole chapter is him trying to persuade us why. See, he says that in past history, actual factual history, Jesus rose from the dead, which means in the future, resurrection for all is definitely coming. And therefore, in the present, it's worth it. It's worth laboring for Jesus. And so the application of the whole chapter, if you just look across to the end of the chapter, verse 58. This is our last verse before we dive into our passage. Verse 58. Given that the resurrection really is real, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is not in vain. That's the big application of this whole series. It's worth it. It's actually worth it. It's not in vain. You see, if like these believers in Corinth, if we lose our grip on eternity if we lose our confidence that Jesus is coming back to get us, well, then pretty soon we'll stop living for then, start living for now. Stop living for God's church, building his people for eternity, and start living for me. Just like Corinth had, just like the world around us. So then, let's find out, why is Paul convinced? And this is our first point, verses 1 to 11. 
Why is Paul convinced that this resurrection day is coming? Well, point one, Jesus really, actually, factually, physically rose from the dead. Jesus really, actually, factually rose from the dead. Paul thinks if you want to know whether it's worth being a Christian, it all depends on this. On that first Easter Sunday, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? If he did, it's worth it. If he didn't, well, there's zero point in being a Christian. The stakes are that stark. Let's just look at the facts. From verse 3, Paul cites four key facts. This probably was an early Christian um, creed or kind of gospel summary. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. So four facts. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. Now it's worth saying that pretty much no one would dispute the first two of those. I mean, there are multiple records saying that uh, there was a Jesus Christ who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And of course, Roman soldiers do have a fair bit of experience in killing people and making sure they're dead. So their assessment is pretty reliable. He really died. The fact he was buried emphasizes that. He was put in the tomb, actually dead, dead and buried dead. But of course, the second two facts are the extraordinary ones, aren't they? Christ was raised on the third day. Christ appeared to many. Now, not, of course, not everyone would agree that the resurrection was the explanation of this fact. But the fact was there was an empty tomb. There was an empty tomb, and, and that does need explaining somehow. It's inconceivable that Christianity could have got off the ground in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was buried, if there was a tomb that was still occupied. The fact is, there was an empty tomb, and so how do you explain it? Jesus' opponents actually didn't deny that the tomb was empty. They just came up with an explanation, an alternative explanation, that like the disciples stole the body. Although I have to say... What their motive and ability for doing so would have been when they were already terrified of the authorities and they wouldn't have been able to overpower Roman guards, I think that takes a real leap of faith. Even more when you see them going on witnessing under threat of their life, even under death, witnessing something they knew was a lie. That seems hard to fathom. And that explanation doesn't explain the final fact that Jesus appeared to many Many claimed that they'd seen Jesus risen from the grave in multiple different times and places. So four facts, really dead, really buried, really empty tomb, and disciples really claiming that he'd appeared to them. And notice from verse 5, it's not just one or two people claiming they met Jesus, but multiple contemporary witnesses. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's just an extraordinary paragraph. Um, 
And that's not even the whole list. I mean, the Gospels tell us that the women who first found the, tru- the tomb are witnesses as well. Paul's naming this list fully expecting, fully inviting people to go and talk to the witnesses. That's why he says some of them are still alive. He's saying you can go and interrogate the eyewitnesses. This letter to Corinth is actually one of the first documents we have, written before most of the Gospels are written down. So this early, while the eyewitnesses are still alive, Paul's saying you can go and talk to them. It's refreshing, isn't it? Christianity being open to interrogation. It's not the kind of classic veil of secrecy that happens in human religions where, you know, the supernatural stuff all happened in a corner or a cave. Someone saw it, the chosen guru, but you just have to take his word for it. Don't ask questions or else. But Paul says, no, the Christian message is nothing like that. It happened in public, in history. Multiple witnesses can testify to the fact that after Jesus was really dead and buried, they saw him alive and well. No hallucination, no dream, but different places, different contexts, different witnesses. To which, if you're a skeptic here, you might say, well, that's all very well for them back then. I mean, maybe in Corinth they could, they could ask Peter as he travels through, but, but the witnesses are now all dead, so you are now asking me to take it second or third hand. You are now asking me to take a leap of faith. Or no, because these witnesses wrote down their testimony for future generations. For people like us, all the way over here in Scotland. That's what the gospel accounts are, the written eyewitness testimonies. If you, if you haven't, as an adult, read one carefully, it's well worth doing it. I'd love to do that with someone or... or and lots in the church would. You see, the eyewitnesses left primary testimony for us to read. Paul here, and lots of the other apostles through the Gospels. It's well worth reading it and thinking, what is their motive? What would they gain from lying? What convinced them to write this stuff? Just think about Paul himself. I'm convinced the only thing that can explain Paul's life story is that Jesus actually met him. Look at verse 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, if you were here for our series in Acts last year, you'll remember Paul, or Saul as he was first known. He was the early church's arch enemy. He was as anti-Jesus as they come. The religious police, he was operating like ISIS. He was going from house to house trying to find converts to Jesus so they could be locked up or beaten to their senses. And then Jesus stopped him. The risen Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in blinding light and said, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? What do you mean, Jesus? I, I, thought, I thought I left you dead and buried in Jerusalem. Well, I was dead and buried, but now I'm raised. Now I'm alive and reigning. And from that moment on, Paul was never the same again. He began preaching the very message he'd rejected so violently. And how else can you explain that? 
So on top of the death, the burial, the empty tomb, the appearances, there's the historical fact of the early church spreading. The risen Jesus continues to save people, to speak to people, to build his church all over the world. The guy's not dead. At which point, sometimes people try to make Christianity seem a little bit less strange by saying, well, maybe it's just the idea of Jesus that lives on, like the teaching of Jesus lives on, or particularly back then, the the idea of a physical resurrection was so strange, just as it is in the Western world. Um, it's It's not the kind of thing you normally see, is it, every day? It's not the normal observable pattern. So you do sometimes get misguided clergy or church leaders saying, that the resurrection wasn't literally Jesus' body coming back to life. It's more that the spirit of Jesus lived on in his followers, or the teaching of Jesus passed down the generations. Now, Jesus does live in us by his spirit, but the idea that he didn't physically rise from the dead, Paul would say, is a load of rubbish. Paul would say, that's the myth-making, the make-believe. Because it wasn't the idea of Jesus that stopped Paul on the Damascus road. It wasn't the spirit of Jesus who invited doubting Thomas to stick his hands in the wound on his side. It wasn't the essence of Jesus that enjoyed barbecued fish with the apostles on the beach. I mean, he he swallowed sardines. We saw him, they say, physically raised. And actually, the whole of the Old Testament scriptures were preparing for this big moment. That's what verse 3 is talking about when it keeps mentioning the scriptures. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It was such a big moment in human history when God's chosen king died for us. Such a big moment that the whole of the Bible was building up to it both the big story that someone would have to die to pay the price for us, and specific passages which just say it straight out, like Isaiah 53. Straight out that we are not right. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and someone has to pay. Someone will come and die in our place and rise again to show that it's worked, to show that we're right with God. And so, just as predicted by the Scriptures, Jesus really, actually, factually, physically rose from the dead. Which means, verse 12, if Christ really did rise from the dead, how can some of you Corinthians say that there is no resurrection of the dead, or that resurrection is simply impossible Paul's reminding them, look, if it's already happened once, and it's a well-attested historical reality, well, then you can't say it's not going to happen again. You can't say it's impossible because it's happened. And in fact, and this is our second point from verse 13 onwards, in fact, you can't actually remove the resurrection from the Christian message without destroying the whole thing. To put it another way, um, think Jenga, you know, those kind of piles of blocks. You can't pull the resurrection brick out without the entire thing collapsing. 
verse 13. We'll, we'll go through the claps in slow motion in our second point. Verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That is, if you, if you just deny as a fact that you cannot have any form of resurrection, well, then Jesus can't have been raised. So therefore, Jesus isn't alive today. You've got no Christ. And verse 14, that means you've got no gospel, no message, no true message. Because verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. In fact, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he did raise Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true the dead are not raised. You see, Paul's saying, you can't, even if you think it's a bit strange, you can't just pull this bit out of Christianity. The whole thing collapses. Because he and the apostles proclaimed this. They said it was a thing of first importance. If the resurrection didn't happen, it's all a lie. Either the apostles are making it up or they're badly, badly deceived. And so verse 17, as the tower continues to crumble, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So now there's no assurance of forgiveness because if you can't trust the scriptures who said that the Messiah would die and rise, and if you can't trust the apostles who saw Jesus die and rise, well, then how can you trust anything? Certainly not the promise of forgiveness, which is all based on Jesus' death in our place. Without the resurrection, there's no confirmation that divine justice is satisfied. And verse 18, there's no hope for those who die trusting in Jesus. Verse 18, then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So last week, standing around Joan's grave or at her Thanksgiving, as many of us mourned her loss with hope, we looked forward to when we'll see her again. Well, Paul's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, actually that's an empty hope. It's a pipe dream. It's pie in the sky. It's wishful thinking. Which means verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. Why pitied? Partly because we'd be living a lie. We'd be walking through life thinking we're forgiven, thinking we have hope beyond the grave, when actually that's all false. It, that in itself is pitiable. But, but more than that, I think we'd be to, to be pitied because the Christian life is costly. As I said at the start, serving the Lord Jesus can be really costly in this life. And if there's no resurrection, there's no point to our labor for the Lord. No point of sending the brashes or speaking up for Jesus, being known as a Christian around the office, uh, standing up in a conversation at the school gate. It's so blunt of Paul to say that, isn't it? It's striking that... I think we want to say, steady on, Paul, steady on. I mean, I mean, surely even in this life there are some benefits to being a Christian. Like, isn't it good to have good morals or a loving community or some kind of purpose? I mean, even if it doesn't turn out to be true, true, at least it's kind of helped us along the way. But Paul would say no. I mean, he'd agree there are huge benefits both to my life and to my family's life and my society's life to me being a Christian. But that's all based on the fact it's true, 
It's helpful because it's true. In fact, the only way you can make Christianity worth it in terms of this life alone, regardless of eternity, the only way you can make the sums work if there's no eternity beyond the grave is to not live like Jesus or Paul, to not be willing to serve and sacrifice, to live the way the Corinthians were, just make it all about me, all about now. See, Paul's clear, if you remove the resurrection, everything collapses. But wonderfully, we're not going to end on that fairly gloomy note, because wonderfully, verse 20, and we'll pick more of this up next time, but verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. See, Jesus is the prototype, the proof of concept, uh, the, the first bit of the harvest that proves the whole crop is going to come. Jesus is the historical marker that says God can and will raise human beings from the dead, physically, bodily. He's the proof that there's a post-grave state that's not just kind of floating around uh, in a nighty on a cloud, not just lurking in a kind of murky underworld like they would have believed back then. Jesus is proof that we'll be raised to a new creation. And so we can go back through every one of those things that would have fallen apart and say that it is reliable, strong, anchored in Jesus' historical resurrection. I've laid them out on the sheet. First, our believing is not in vain. Paul's not just preaching make-believe, it's truth, the kind of rock you can build life upon. Assurance of forgiveness is real, it's not in vain. It's not just a psychological trick. If you're a Christian, you are right with God. I was speaking to someone recently about how, for both of us actually, sometimes shameful things would come back in our, into our minds, things we wish we hadn't said or done. It's forgiven because Christ was raised. It's definitely, certainly forgiven. And likewise, as we do face the death of loved ones, like Joan, people who've placed their confidence in Jesus Christ, we can have real assurance that we'll see, see them again and we'll see them in much better health. It's a wonderful thing to grieve with hope. It's a wonderful thing in a world that is terrified by death. I mean, you don't need the coronavirus to tell us that, but it is pretty obvious at the moment, isn't it, as it heads inexorably all around the world reminding us how fragile our existence actually is, how, how our bodies are not invincible. What a wonderful thing it is to have a secure hope of eternity. And so gospel living, even costly gospel living, sacrifices where we live God's way, not the world's way, effort where we serve others and share the gospel, it's not in vain we're not the people to be pitied because the resurrection is real. There'll be a day where we stand before the risen Lord Jesus, where we hear that well done, good and faithful servant, and we look back on lives and think, that was not wasted. And actually, we'll think more about this next week, but that little box I've put 
on the bottom of the handout. That little box is, is a summary of the major sections of this whole letter and the topics that Paul's been challenging them on. Because in every area, remembering that Jesus rose from the dead and that eternity is real, remembering that is what can keep you going, living God's way. So chapters 1 to 4, what would, what would cause someone to be willing to look a bit silly in the eyes of the world? Like Paul, to stick to a message of Christ crucify, which doesn't impress anyone, doesn't sound clever, doesn't sound powerful. Well, that's chapters 1 to 4, and what kept Paul going was knowing he'd be meeting Jesus face to face. In chapters 5 to 7, when Paul encouraged us and them to, to value holiness personally and as a church family, well, why bother? Well, why not just do whatever feels good? Who cares what I do with my body? It's not going with me. Well, no, says Paul, it is going with you. Your body will be raised. It matters what you're doing with it. Holy living's not in vain. Or chapters 8 to 10, which we'll be more familiar with from our motto series last term. Why would I give up rights and freedoms so that others can hear the good news of Jesus? Well, because eternal futures matter. More than just where I eat or my social life. You see, in light of Jesus' historical resurrection, that future resurrection is certain, which means living now, in the present, for God's glory and the good of others, is worth it. And so, as I close, let me just ask you, whether you're not a Christian yet, or you are a Christian yet, have you recently stopped and thought about the facts, the simple facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. I think times when we're feeling weary in the race or we're feeling prone to self-pity, when we feel like walking with Jesus is a bit of a tough deal, sometimes it's worth just going back and checking the facts. He actually rose. He'll actually come back and raise us to be with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that not just with our heads, but with our hearts, you would help us to have real confidence in the future resurrection. And please help us to live our lives in all areas with that day in mind. And we do pray that for those feeling weary here, for those wondering about whether becoming a Christian is too costly, we pray for all of us that you would give us a real confidence that living for you is not in vain. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.